0: I think it's 6.02, according to my watch. I'll go ahead and, and get things started. Um, before I introduce Michael to you all uh, who don't know him, uh, let me just kind of remind us where we are. So we've done the first three weeks. One was more of an intro of one another, uh, followed by kind of some introductory thoughts about canon and authority of scripture and uh, transmission of the text you know, through the ages. Last, last week, we dealt more with some of the historical background, all the way from uh you know the close of the old testament period with the persians ruling and then the the greek alexander the great and greek and the great and the hellenistic empire the greek empire and then into roman times and and then different divisions within judaism and different groups uh, of that and what the greco-roman world was like We can discuss some of that so the next five weeks today is going to be an intro and then the next four weeks is going to be one week dev- devoted to each individual gospel. Um, for reasons that may you may have picked up on in, from your uh, uh, extra reading in the text, uh, The Lion and the Lamb, uh, we have, uh, and Michael, I want to make sure you know this too, that, that next week is supposed to be on Mark rather than Matthew. So rather than following the canonical, uh, we will start with Mark, but then follow the canonical after that. It'll be Matthew, Luke, and then John. Okay. Uh, and your reading assignments are really primarily just to read the Gospels. If you get to the Lion and Lamb textbook, uh, that's a bonus. And, it'd be, you know, that's a bonus. But really, your primary reading is going to be the actual Gospels because, um, you, you know, what we, what we recommend, i like you've heard me say this before, is that you read it in as few sittings as possible uh, because we want you to catch the flow as much as you can. Uh, and you have a sense of of the of the you know unfolding story as it's happening, and um, so so yeah. If you, you'll be doing that every week uh, after after tonight, uh, Mark, and then Matthew, and then Luke, and then John, and then just go ahead and prep you for your essay that will be coming up after that. Um, you'll have one hour. It's gonna be self timed. You're on your own to do it, and um, and at that point, we'll, you'll choose one of two essay questions. One of them will be how does each gospel writer make his, his own unique contribution to our understanding of Jesus or something like that. It's, it's, on, it's, on, your own, uh, it's, it's on your syllabus and it'll, uh, it'll tell you uh, exactly how it's worded. And the other one's a, a more of a, a general question if you want to choose that. What are you learning about Jesus and how is it impacting you? So that's a little bit more of a subjective question. And uh, so feel free to take either one of those. Know that that hour goes by really quick. And so uh, I would encourage you to have an outline. Uh, now, it's technically not an open outline test. So you know have an outline, but, but technically you're not supposed to use it. It is open book in terms of open Bible, not, not that your textbook, but it is an open Bible uh, thing. But just know that that hour goes by quick. Every year the students tell me, wow, I didn't realize that. So pr- probably the whole time, you pretty, when, it, when that hour starts, you pr- pretty much need to know kind of what you're gonna do because uh, it will go by quickly. All right. I'm going to introduce Michael now. We are very blessed to have Michael Card uh, connected to our church. Uh, Michael has been one of my favorite singer-songwriters for my entire adult life, uh, beginning when I was in college. And um, I don't know if Michael, if you'll agree with this or not, but I would say that maybe more recently, he's probably better known as a writer and a teacher and and those kind of things. Uh, So he's got both the musical side a great songwriter, but then also a great scholar, uh, written several books. In fact, four of his books that he's written are popular commentaries on each of the individual Gospels. So if you go to Amazon or whatever, and you put in, you know, Michael Card, Gospel of Matthew, you'll see University Press has put out his books on each one of the Gospels. A great resource for you. So you might want to consider getting that. So anyway, very excited to have Michael. I've been blessed to get to know him uh, a little bit more personally as, as a friend, and so I've been very blessed to have him in my life, and so uh, I'm going to pray for our time together, if that's okay, Michael, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. Lord, thank you for these uh, men and women on this uh, Zoom call, and uh, thank you for Michael. I pray that you'd speak through him and to us, help give us ears to hear, or as well, we learn about Jesus these next five weeks, including tonight, and uh, Lord, um, yes, that we would learn the 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 details and, the, and some of the academic knowledge stuff, but always to the end that we might know Jesus better, uh, not simply academically, but know him greater as our Savior. And we mm-hmm. pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And j- just to follow up on your prayer, Roger, the, the, the thing I keep warning myself about is um, n- just because you know a lot of details about Jesus, people know a lot about him, but they still can't know, don't, don't know him. And, uh, but that's not a reason not to do what, what I'm trying to do. And that is, uh, I want to know everything about him that can be known. And uh, I just had my 54th anniversary of, of, of uh, following, becoming a follower of Jesus. I was uh, nine years old and walked the aisle in Little Baptist Church in Madison, Tennessee, and uh, just found the, my baptismal Bible that had that date in it. And uh, in 54 years of knowing him, there's still, you know, there's something about his life. You just never get to the bottom of it. You never squeeze it dry. And so my new thing is um, looking at the details uh, and learning to ask what they mean. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. Um, a couple of things led up to this. I was uh, teaching in uh, Rabbit City, South Dakota last year. Talking about Caesarea Philippi and what a pagan place it was, all the pagan temples there and how Jesus, you know, it's always bothered. It still bothers me, actually, that he went there. And um, this young man held his hand up and said, uh, uh, you're telling me Jesus went to a city full of pagan temples? I said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. He said, and the only temple he ever tore up was his own. And this, this kid, it was, I thought it was a brilliant question. Jesus doesn't tear up the temple to Pan or the temple to Augustus or the temple to the dancing goats in Caesarea Philippi. He tears up his temple. And one of the new details that I'm seeing, I was just reading uh, yesterday in, in Mark 11, where after he uh, tears up the temple the second time, he does it twice. Uh, Mark gives the detail that Jesus wouldn't let people carry any merchandise through the temple court. And that's a detail. And you stop and you go. I'm learning to say, okay, I knew that detail, but what does that detail mean? And for the very first time in all these years, I realized what it means is that Jesus is the ultra conservative. He uh, we talked about this before uh, we went on on the air, uh, Roger. You know, J- Jesus tearing up the temple. He doesn't do that. I always thought it was because he was this radical. It, it's the Pharisees that are that are warping Judaism and adding to Judaism. They're, they're creating what will eventually become rabbinic Judaism. And um, Jesus is the conservative who wants the temple to be God's house and not a marketplace. And, and uh, so that's a new detail for me. And um, even, even so far as a, a small thing like Judas kissing Jesus, I stopped and finally asked myself, well, what, what, what does that mean? Of course, one thing it means is that Judas is really a creepy guy and you know, a bad guy. But the other thing that means is that Jesus is unrecognizable. He's got to be pointed out. He looks just like the other 12. It's not like he's six foot with auburn hair and blue eyes. Uh, Celsus, who, who wasn't particularly fond of Jesus, uh, described Jesus as being scruffy looking. So, um, and actually there's a very good book about what Jesus looked like. If you're interested, I'll give you my uh, my uh, bibliography. But So my first question is, I'll get on my notes now, I'll stop jabbering. Um, why don't we know Jesus better? I think that's the first question I asked myself and here's some of my answers and I would encourage you to come up with your own. The first answer is that 2,000 years is an unimaginably long time. We, we talk about, oh, first century AD, like it was uh, 10 years ago. 2,000 years ago is, we can't imagine how long ago that was. I mean, I'm in Franklin, where the Civil War was 150 years or so ago, and it's hard to get in touch with mentally with with that time, 150 years. But one reason I don't know Jesus better, he lives unimaginably long uh, ago, and he lives a a long distance. Uh, I Googled his house. His house is 6,578 miles from my house. That's a long way. He lives on the other side of the world in in distance, and in in time, he lives 2,000 years away. I heard you reference the culture. Jesus lives in this really odd I don't think there was ever a time like this where they were this mixture of odd cultures. And another very important idea, and I'll probably repeat this many times, is I, I never had an appreciation for how fragmented Jesus' world is. No one agrees on anything. Uh, the, the Jews are fragmented. The Pharisees, there are seven different groups of Pharisees. The Sadducees, don't, they don't agree on canon. They don't agree on uh, resurrection. Um, Jesus lives in this very fragmented world. Judaism is fragmented. In fact, Isaiah Gaffney, who's one of my favorite Jewish uh, scholars, he says in Jesus' day in the first century, of course, he doesn't care about Jesus, not talking about Jesus, but he says in the first century, uh, there was no such thing as Judaism. Gaffney says there are Judaisms. And if you think about it, the gospel makes that evident. You know, we have bits and pieces of what what I would refer to as Israelite religion, temple, cult, you know, uh, sacrificing animals in in one place in the temple. That's Israelite religion, but even that's becoming fragmented, right? Uh, The high priest is not from uh, the the line of uh, uh, the priesthood. He's been appointed by the Romans. The Holy of Holies is an empty room in Jesus' day. There's no Ark of the Covenant in that room. The temple has been rebuilt by Herod. As a tourist attraction, that's the world that Jesus That So Judaism is, well, calm down. (laughs) Judaism is fragmented. We have this Roman sort of the threat of of Rome and that sort of the dominating um, uh, element of Rome. And another new thing I keep talking to myself a lot about is the fact that really from the moment he's born, Jesus isn't safe from anyone, right? He's got to flee from Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. And then I'm obviously I think he has a quiet period growing up as far as we know. But then once his certainly once his ministry starts, there are Jews who want to kill him. There are Romans who want to kill him. Right? He's not his. It, it, you know his brothers will say you're gonna you're not going to Judea because people are waiting there to kill you, right? So there there's this aspect of his character or of his life that he's not really a he's not really afraid of anything. He grows up in what I would call a culture of terror. the The year he's born. We think he's born between uh, four and six B.C. Uh, the year Jesus is born, about three miles from his house, uh, Verus, it's a beautiful city called Sepphoris. Um, Verus crucifies 2,000 people in one day. So that would be like us growing up, you know, three miles from Auschwitz. He, he grows up in a culture that's dominated, I think, by terror and, and, and fragmented. Um, so that, those are other reasons why it's hard to know him. This is an interesting number. Um, at that same class in Rapid City, I assigned the, the, the students, it was a college class. I assigned them a paper and this young lady came up to me afterwards and she, they were all upset. They didn't want to write papers. They think you think I wanted a quart of blood from them. And uh, this young woman said, well, I'm gonna drop the class. I said, well, they, you don't have to do that. I'm a math major, she says. I, I, I don't even know why I took this class. I said, you're a math major, right? I said, okay. You' don't have to write, you don't have to write a paper. I just want a number from you. and she got interested. I said i w- 've always wondered what percentage of Jesus' life is portrayed in the gospels And she got really excited. It was just supposed to be a five page paper. She gave me twenty or thirty pages of calculation. She estimated in minutes how long each incident took in the Gospels and harmonized them and added them up. And I've got the paper actually right here, divided into 33 years. And this is the number she came up with, 0.09%. She says, it's G- if Jesus' life is $100, we have nine cents of it. Now, I'm a pointy-headed fundamentalist, and I believe the Bible's perfect. So I think that 0.09 is a perfect number. I don't think we could process more than 0.09% of his life. I think that's why the gospels don't tell us more. I think he probably did some things that are even more scandalous uh, and harder to understand than the things we know. But another reason we don't know Jesus is we just have this tiny little slice of his life. Um, another reason we don't know him better is that we've allowed other people to know him for us. And I'm very guilty of that. And by that, I mean, scholars, people, we read their books, mean we, we let them know him for us without engaging with the text and really listening to the text uh, ourselves, uh, one Well, two more final reasons. Frankly, I don't like a lot of his friends. I don't know him better because I really don't like a lot of his friends. And then finally, my mentor, uh, William Lane, used to talk a lot about what he called the absolute lordship of Jesus. And one reason I don't know him better is that frankly, he dis- that's disturbing. Uh, and when I say absolute lordship, I mean, um, well, Bill used to say, Lord means Lord. And you see this all through the gospels. When Jesus, the, the, the man who's lame for 38 years, who doesn't even know who Jesus is, Jesus tells him to get up and he gets up. You'll hear people say, well, people had to know who Jesus was, they had to have faith in him in order for him to heal him. That's absolutely false. Jesus doesn't even have to be there. He can say, go home your daughter's well. His absolute lordship is something I don't think we talk uh, about. And and the the, the most disturbing place, I think you see it, is when the, the call comes, when he comes to the disciples or he goes to Matthew. And the nature of that call is seen in their response. Jesus says to them, follow me. And that's not an invitation. That's not go home, talk to your wife, see if it's a good idea, get back to me know that w- what is the nature of their response? They drop what's in their hands and walk away. So the follow me is a command that comes sort of via this absolute lordship. And if you look at it that way, I mean I'm Southern Baptist. I we had this cozy little, you know, image of the call, and you know, he he you know, he he takes them out and they catch a bunch of fish and he says, Ah, you're gonna catch men, and how you know elegant that idea was. But I'm seeing that more in terms of almost a disturbing thing uh, and I'm asking myself daily if I've dropped my net yet, if I've let go of my nets yet, because I think maybe sometimes I, I haven't. So that's sort of a brief kind of introduction. So um, let me talk about some details. Um, this comes from an article called The Biological Characteristics of Jewish Burial in the Hellenistic and Roman Period. And I just wanted to know how tall he was, <laughs> okay? And eight burial caves, 227 skeletons were analyzed. Average height was five foot six. So that on me, that's right here to my nose. That's how tall Jesus probably is. And you think, well, he's short. No, he's not short, everybody's short, right? He's, if he's average, he's five foot six. Uh, we have no descriptions of him. And I think the reason is there wasn 't any reason to describe him because he looked just like everyone else if he had a if he had a big nose or if he was ugly or if he was handsome, somebody would have uh, i think commented on it but uh, we, we have no descriptions and so my i think there's the reason for that is he 's not recognizable and that explains like john twenty one when uh, after the resurrection when he 's standing on the shore they don 't know who it is. I used to have this mysterious, complex answer about Um, them not expecting to see him because of the resurrection they had zero expectations blah 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 and when I'm finally realizing realizing it's far far more simple he's a hundred yards away and he's standing there and from a hundred yards away he looks just like anybody else and I don't know if that means a lot to you guys but that that that's having a real impact on me you will you would pass Jesus on the street and you would not look twice he looks just like everyone else and uh, I think that's interesting uh, I've done a lot of work, and by a lot of work, I mean probably 10 or 15 articles on what languages Jesus speaks. And you would not believe the literature on this and the disagreement on this. But uh, the, the, the the consensus that I've come with, up with so far is he basically speaks three languages. Everyone speaks Aramaic. The Jews spoke Aramaic. They brought that back from Babylon with them, okay? Um, he, he also, he speaks Hebrew in the synagogue. He reads his Bible in Hebrew. I know we have Targums that are in Aramaic, but that came later. Um, and the other interesting thing I discovered is there was a tradition in German scholarship in the 40s, because of anti-Semitism, they didn't want Jesus to speak Hebrew. And so they downplayed the idea of the fact that he spoke Hebrew. So we're undoing some of that, some of that. So this newer idea, he speaks, he speaks Aramaic, he also speaks Hebrew. And he speaks Greek, at least some Greek. When he's, when he's talking to Pilate, he's speaking Greek. When he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, she speaks Greek. And the other interesting thing I found out was in most of the world that polyglot uh, multilingualism is, that's how most of the rest of the world is. We as Americans are the exception. Most of us only speak one, I mean, I only speak one language, most, most of us. Uh, so we're, we're the minority, and, but what does that mean? See, what does that mean? That's a fact. What does it mean? What it means is when he's talking, if he doesn't have a word in Aramaic, he'll, he'll, he'll use a Greek word. And uh, some very complex an- uh, analysis of his language is going on by, by a scholar uh, whose article I just finished. And he, his example was the word hypocrite. Jesus probably. You know I, know, I know we have him in Greek, in speaking in Greek in the, the, the New Testament, but he probably wasn't just speaking Greek. He's speaking Aramaic, but this guy proves that Jesus is borrowing this word hypocrite. That's a Greek word he borrows. And people who are multilingual do that. If he doesn't have a word for something, he'll borrow it from one of his other languages, um, which I think, I don't know, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, following up on what he looks like, uh, one of my questions was, does he wear a yarmulke? Does he have a capa? Uh, capa? No, that doesn't happen until the fifth century. So Jesus doesn't have one of those. Does he have side locks? No, he doesn't wear those. They didn't wear those yet. Uh, those, those distinctions of being Judaism, uh, of being Jewish in a culture only tend to happen when you're a minority in the culture and you dress in such a way as to show people that you're Jewish. But in jesus day we know he has the tzitzit he has the fringe on his on his uh, robe that the woman touches so he does he does have that but no no uh capa and no uh side locks and in those caves in those burials the average hair length was three inches so his hair is probably not long it's probably short he wears a knee knee length tunic um yeah and here, here's my—I I don't know how where we are on time, but here, here's one of my other uh, questions: Is what what's his favorite verse? And if I want to know him personally, what's his favorite verse? And I think that's a really easy answer because this was kind of everybody's favorite verse, in Mark 12:29, a friendly scribe asked Jesus, "What's the greatest commandment?" In Matthew 22:37, a less friendly Pharisee asked Jesus, and Jesus answers with this. And then in Luke 10:25. Jesus asks a scribe what's the greatest commandment, the scribe answers with it, and Jesus says, you're right. So this is my case for the fact that this is his favorite verse. Uh, shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, et Adonai vikola vavka, vikola feshka, vikola feshka, me Hear, O Israel, Shema. Listen, it really means listen. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's a great creed of monotheism. And you must love the Lord your God with all your love, heart. It's where word we get our word love from. Uh, with all your uh, uh, soul, nephesh. And with your me'od, which means a lot, with everything. You love him with your everything, with your muchness. So the, Jesus' favorite verse basically teaches, and this is William Lane talking again. Jesus' favorite verse basically teaches that the best way to love God is to listen to him. That's, that's really the heart of the Shema. If you really want to love God, you love him, listen. You love him by listening to him, by uh, Shema. And I think that's honestly behind when he says, let he, he has ears to hear, let him hear. I really think that's, that's Shema. Uh, so if you, have, if you have ears to hear, you should Shema, you should, uh, you should listen. So that's, that's sort of a broad overview of kind of the uh, uniquenesses and some details um, we can talk about miracles. I mean, if you want to talk about more of these sort of peculiar, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the miracles and the way he does his miracles. Uh, I refer to them as unmiraculous. I don't know if we've talked about this, Roger. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever, ever noticed before uh, the nature of Jesus' miracles are, are great. I'm not saying they're not great miracles. Raising somebody from the dead is not too shabby. But what I'm becoming interested in is the way he does his miracles. And if you notice, he, he always, with two exceptions in Mark, there are two exceptions where he, he does them very bombastically. But basically, he'll, how does he feed the 5,000? He says the blessing. I think most of the people didn't even know a miracle had happened. You know, he'll, he'll say, you know, Lazarus, come, come out. Or he'll say, get up. Or he'll say, go home, you're, 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 uh, you're, your servant as well or your daughter as well. Uh, he heals in absentia, um, and, and frequently, to add to this picture, frequently he does miracles and he says, don't tell anybody I did that, okay? Please don't tell anybody I did that. Of course, they never do, because how can you not tell, right? And the, the point is, so that's a, I think that's a detail. What does that detail mean? Okay, Let's, that's what I'm trying to learn to do, okay? I'll calm down. Uh, <laughs> what it means is he's constantly pointing away from himself even in his miracles, because the, the, the interesting thing that happens when Jesus does miracles, with one exception, he does a miracle and people praise God. The only, the only exception is when he calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples worship him, and I guess that's, that's okay, because he just saved all their lives, but uh, I, I find it really interesting that Jesus does miracles and people praise God, and it's, it's, it has to do with this, this, posture that he has when he does his miracles i'm only saying when i hear the father say i'm only doing what the father does and uh i i i just think that's remarkable the two exceptions are in mark uh when uh the first one is he he uh, um he sticks sticks his fingers in the guy's ears and pops them out and yells and then in the next chapter, he, he uh, partially heals a blind man. I see men like trees walking around. Those are the two exceptions. And when you read those miracles, if you've, been lo- if you've been listening closely to the text, you think, whoa, hold on. That is not how Jesus does miracles. Something's up. And what happens is right in between those two stories, they're in the boat, and they're talking about having no bread. And Jesus says to the disciples, and this is something Bill Lane discovered. Bill says, you have eyes, but you barely see, just like the man whose sight he, you know, he got his sight back in stages. He says, he says you have ears, but you barely hear. And Bill was convinced that those two different uh, in character miracles were sort of parabolic somehow that Jesus was making a point about the gradual opening of the eyes and the ears of the disciples, which I think is a pretty cool idea. So uh, but I mean, I can I can do this all night, you know, any any, please don't disagree with me. I'm very fragile, but uh, I've got notes here. Any anything you want to look at or I think my time's up. Well, I'll I'll just throw this out. And and this is something I'm working on. I haven't figured this out yet. I am very interested in what I call uh, the um, dual stories. I think it's really interesting that there are so many, um, you know, two, two temple expulsions, two storms on the Sea of Galilee, two miraculous feedings, two, com- two uh, confessions of Peter. I don't have my list in front of me. I think I came up with 11 dual stories. And the only thing I've discovered so far in the Talmud, uh, the rabbis talk about how in the Old Testament, Sometimes one story will interpret another story, but I don't have I don't have the answer to that yet. But I really think that's an interesting feature of the Gospels. Of course, what the the liberal scholars do is say, well, there's really only one feeding, and you know they John got the wrong one, or they you know the church made up the second one, or something like that, which I think is not only not not only not true; it's just bad scholarship. Um, so I'll just throw that out to you. One, of you. one of you guys can, with a better brain than me, you can figure that out. Uh, dual stories. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. So if you want to, and we'll talk about individual gospels starting with Mark next week, right? So we'll look, at, we'll look at Mark as a person. Who's Mark? What's the life situation of his gospel? What's unique about his language? And that's, to me, the most fascinating thing about studying the gospels is, is how nuanced each one of them is. I, I just think it's so interesting. That there, there are things Mark's interested in that Matthew couldn't care less about. And I just think that's so, I don't know, I just think that's so cool. For Matthew, everything's the kingdom, right? He's just, he's gonna wear you out. Uh, Mark is not interested in that. Luke is not interested in that. Uh, Luke, Luke is, in, well, I don't get started talking about those things, but I, that, I find those uh, nuances really interesting, the different vocabularies um, and I think that was obviously part of the perfection of the Gospels is those, those uh, different perspectives. So I'll shut up. I'll, I, can't, I can't stop because I'll just tell you, um, this is my 54th year, and I find him more interesting and more compelling than... It's just a, he's an elegant thinker. I use the word elegant a lot when I talk about Jesus now. I love the way his mind works. Um, I love the way that he he, the way he crosses tenses. We can talk about Jesus is, and we can talk about Jesus was. You know, um, trying to think about that right now. So I'll shut up. I'm I'm really done now. I promise. (laughs) Uh,
0: No, thank you, Michael. That's great. And uh, just you're working on a book that kind of deals with the everyday life of Jesus, or tell us a little bit about the book you're working on.
1: Well, um, it, it's 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 called. It, I don't. Well, I actually don't have a title for it. The subtitle is what. The, what do the details mean? And so that's that's why I'm working on what languages he speaks, what what he wears, uh, what you know, um, who are the Pharisees, and what really what what was really going on. Um, uh, I'm I'm seeing. A, 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 I've heard this sort of you and you too have too, Roger, hint, that hinted that a person like Gamaliel and Hillel and the impact that they had. Uh, I'm amazed at the impact that Hillel had on Jesus, and and the person the person of Hillel. I'm very just very interested in. So so there are these unnamed people who I think impacted him. Uh, he quotes Hillel two or three times, and very is very much like him. And I've I've become convinced too that the the other the other Pharisaic group, which was a, a followers of a man named Shammai. Uh, those are the people who persecute Jesus. Nicodemus, certainly a follower of Hillel. Paul is absolutely a follower of Hillel because he's uh, Gamaliel is Hillel's grandson. So Paul is a follower of Hillel. And so people who tend to have uh, 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 sympathy for Jesus and the message of the Gospels are the followers of this very Christ-like rabbi named Hillel. And uh, so that's the kind of stuff I just, like I said before, I want to know everything I can know about Jesus. Everything that can be known, I want to know. And I don't think that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Mike, are you okay if I open it up to see if any of the sure. folks have questions for you? Sure. Just don't uh,
1: disagree do. with me.
0: <laughs> so um, if you have a question for Michael, if, if it's about an individual gospel, I would say wait on that because we'll be dealing with that in the weeks ahead. But it's more of a, if it's more a general question about Jesus or about the times or about the gospel writers in general um i certainly want to give you an opportunity to ask if you would like
2: do you think Gamaliel was a undercover believer
1: um i can tell you this the leadership in the early church were almost all pharisaics and they were and they were almost all followers of gamaliel so um he 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 definitely stands up for jesus doesn't he and um i I would like to say he is, but my academic reason for that is that I really want that to be true. <laughs> uh, I, tremendous, tremendous. Uh, you know, there's a lot that we can know about Gamaliel and Hillel, both. They're, they're spoken about in the Talmud. And I just discovered this. Roger, did you know Nicodemus? There's, there's a section in the Talmud about Nicodemus. I
0: did not know that. He's
1: a, very, he's a very well-known person, a very wealthy person, known for his gentleness and that sort of thing. And of course, these the people writing the Talmud have no sympathy whatsoever for Jesus. They say Jesus is a sorcerer and an illegitimate, you know. They say he's illegitimate and all these horrible things. So, um, but to your question, I really want Gamaliel to be a hidden follower of Jesus. Um, yeah, I think and he certainly became one. If he wasn't one, if he wasn't one in Acts, I think he certainly became one.
2: And then you mentioned that miracle with uh, Jesus half healing the eyes and then healing again and I know you mentioned a, a kind of an explanation that was given to you but do you have your own opinions of why Jesus didn't fully heal him from the beginning because that's something yeah. that always confused me.
1: Yeah I, I, I do have, do have an opinion and that well the first thing is does Jesus have to spit or make mud or do anything like that to heal people No, all he has to do is say it, you know? So I think when you see that kind of uh, behavior, you've got to stop and say, no, wait a minute, he's doing something, he's making making a point. And uh, gradually healing someone's eyes, I think is a parable. I think the healing is parabolic in characters because the disciples are all standing there and they're thinking, wow, that's what's happening to me. You know, Jesus, because in, in, in just like 10 verses, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you have eyes, but you can barely see. You have ears, but you can barely hear. And so I think what's happening is he's he's in, there's that passage between Mark 3 and 6 where he's intensively discipling them. I think they're gradually getting it. Uh, so I, I, that's the only explanation I have. He, de- he doesn't have to spit or make mud or touch anybody's tongue to do any of that stuff um, and and those healings bugged me for a long time you know so that I, I'm satisfied with that answer I'm satisfied with that answer but I think we have to learn to look at his life in such a way we have to look, uh, know him so well that every now and then he'll do something you go wait a minute that's not how he usually does things You know, why did he do it that way, you know, so.
0: Anyone else? Another question for Michael.
3: I was
2: thinking it was interesting, the two, the two stories, the two storms. Yeah. And then I thought, is it the anointing of the Marys, two different Marys as well? Once you
1: start looking for them, you find them (laughs) everywhere.
2: I'm like, ah, oh, that is interesting.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, and I just found there are two two confessions of Peter. There's the Caesarea Philippi one that we all know about, but then there's the one in in Capernaum. So Peter makes two confessions, uh, and like I said, I've got my list. I think it's down downstairs. I've got eleven on my list, and if there were three or four, I would say, eh, but eleven. There's something in the culture, or there's some there's something going on where I'll, and they're two separate stories. Um, and like I said, I haven't figured that one out yet. Only, only insofar as to say the rabbis believed that there were dual stories because one would help you interpret the other one.
2: Almost like two witnesses, too.
1: That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, established in the mouth of two witnesses. That's interesting. See, what I want to do is throw it out there and then have you guys are way smarter than me. You'll figure it out. And then you'll tell me, and then I'll ta- teach it like I thought of it. That's how that works. Find, let me, here's the old man giving you advice find other people who will do your homework for you. That's what you got to do.
0: <laughs> Willick, did you have a question?
3: Yeah, Michael. I, I, I kind of uh, didn't quite understand how. I can't hear. Oh, you can't hear me? Sorry. Can you hear me now? That's better. Okay. Yeah. I mean, how does how does the absolute lordship of jesus uh not allowing prevent us from knowing more about him that one that one i couldn't quite understand when you were speaking about that part okay
1: that's a good question i, I don't want to say it prevents us from knowing him mm-hmm. i'm just saying it's an ab it's an aspect of his character that we haven't fully appreciated and that it can be disturbing um i I think to seriously to take seriously when he calls his disciples i mean it's it 's faith over family they 're leaving their families right, and I think that can be disturbing um, oh. he, he, his, it, yeah his his lordship is absolute it 's not limited by anything, and we try to limit it and i don 't think i mean he lord means lord he's it, you know he 's the son of god he's God in the flesh, and I don't think that keeps us from knowing Him, but it—it, it, uh, I don't want to say that it makes it makes it harder to know Him. Um, I'm just saying it's disturbing. He I has see. a disturbing presence. So let me under- let me make sure I understand you.
3: Then, so what you're saying is there are areas that we can fully understand about Jesus, and because of His absolute lordship, there are areas that are disturbing. We may not be able to understand. Or
1: know fully about him? No, I don't. I don't want to say that. I don't because the Holy Spirit's going to bring us into into uh, to understanding. But here's what I'm saying: is mm-hmm. it's clear from the Gospels that there were people that were afraid of Jesus. Oh. The the uh, the the gathering demoniac, the people in the in the in the town, they ask him to leave because they're afraid of him. Uh, there's a couple of other stories. At one point, the deci- uh, Well, I, th- I think there're three times in Mark when the disciples are terrified. Not necessarily by him, but by something he did. That's the point I'm making. Uh, I and see. so when I say absolute lordship, that his his um, claim on your life is absolute. I mean, martyrs will right. Martyrdom is uh, just part of is part of uh, the Christian faith, and. Uh, for American Christians, I think that's that's difficult. But I, I don't want I don't want to. I, I'm I'm not doing a very good job if I'm saying it. It keeps me from knowing Him, because I would I would I would hate. I, I think that's how you really know Him. Is you if you appreciate that absolute lordship? You're really knowing Him, not the American Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible, who asks for everything. You drop your nets. You walk away from your family, and you die if he if you're called upon to die. Um, I, I was
4: gonna, so I was gonna um, just go ahead and add something too and obviously in our situation it wasn't this severe but to your point about being Americans and living a very comfortable life and I mm-hmm. think it's when you have a situation in your life where you hear the Lord calling you you know he's calling you to action or to do something and how many of us have had that call that's to something so extreme that we have to get fully uncomfortable so like for us Um, we were called to move from California to Tennessee. It was the Lord's calling. Mm -hmm. And I I had to, it was a calling on my heart and explain it to my daughters and my husband. And it's just like, what, what are you talking about? I said, he's calling us to Tennessee. We've never been here before. I, we don't have family here or Mm -hmm. anything, but it was just that undeniable. Like this isn't an option. This isn't like, let's see and try to figure it out. It's like, no, we we're, we're going. Right. And I think the, the appreciation and the, um, the, the deepness of having a situation in your life that's undeniable, just magnifies that even more, you yeah. know, because I think we tend to think we're, you know, even though we trust in the Lord, that we're still kind of in control. Like we can say, okay, Lord, I'm going to listen and move on this. But this yeah. other one's a little bit out of my comfort zone, so I'm going to maintain being the decision maker, yeah. you know? And I, I think your uh, knowing him becomes so much deeper when you have those times where it's like, are you going to pick up your cross and go with it? Are you going to follow his lead, you know, yeah. drop your net?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I had my, my own version of that. For 35 years, I toured on a tour bus, okay, which is a very luxurious way to tour. Okay. I'm not, that's not, that's not part of the suffering. But at one point we, t- we totaled. we, we uh, at 55 miles an hour, we ran into a parked 18 Wheeler and we totaled a 42 foot tour bus. Um, and I separated my, I was the only one that got hurt. I separated my shoulder, but even that wasn't the, that wasn't the hard part. Um, the hard part was six months later uh, getting back on another bus. And what happened was we, we uh, did a concert. I don't need, I forgot where, where it was. We did a concert somewhere and the concert's over and I'm packing my gear up and I'm in the middle of a, a, a vacant stage. And right here, right over my shoulder, I hear a voice saying, if you get back on that bus, I'm going to kill you. That's going to be it for you. And um, at that moment, what the Lord gave me was, I actually laughed and, and turned around and said, is that the best you got? You're gonna scare me to not get on this bus and go to wherever the next town is, and that's my own little little slice of. No, I'm going to this next place, even if you gonna, even if I get killed on the way. It's you know, um, and I don't know that that's my story like that. Yeah. Yeah, is that the best you got? <laughs>
0: Another question for Michael.
1: No trick questions like where do babies come from or anything like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is not a question, but uh, I grew up in South Africa, and I just wanted to let you know that I grew up on your music. My parents oh, yeah. loved you, and my mom played you a lot. So I let her know that you were going to teach me Bible stuff the that moment I found out. She was like, "We
1: oh. hung out, and yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Same thing
3: here, Michael. I can't help but say it. You know, 30 years ago, a young believer, uh-huh. uh, midnight just listening to your music and uh-huh. seeing you face to face and hearing what you share.
0: Uh-huh.
3: It's, you haven't changed. It's the same, you know, the message that you have in your music, yeah, all yeah. The, the detail that you have about Jesus is the way you're saying
1: it now. It just amazes yeah. me. <laughs> well, th- thank you. Well, here's, what I've, here's what I've come to understand. If any of those songs really helped you, if they really helped you, I had nothing to do with it. You know I'm saying? If they really helped you. Now, if you like the banjo playing or something like that, maybe that has something to do, but, but if they really helped, really helped you, I had nothing to do with it. And that's a wonderfully freeing idea. But I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that that music was helpful to you. But I can tell you, like I said before, I'm 63. I've never been so interested in the life of Jesus. And I do want to caution myself I don't want to think knowing details about him is the same thing as knowing him, but I do feel like I'm 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 understanding him better. I think there, I think this can be done right. It doesn't have to be done wrong. Mm-hmm. So, but thank you for that encouragement, you guys. I appreciate that.
0: That's pretty neat how the music went to South Africa and yeah. somewhere in Asia was. Is it China or where will we? uh, Malaysia, it's Malaysia. A
3: it's actually a Muslim country. So yeah, Muslim
0: country in Malaysia. That's that's amazing. Yes, fantastic. Wow. That's great. Well, thanks. That's, what, a, what a great thing, Michael. What um, was the the name of the book you referenced earlier about the appearance appearances of Jesus? What it, what was the title of that?
1: What do you, What did he look like? Yes. Um, Stay, wait right here. I'll be right. Can you wait here? I'll be right back. it's just yeah. <laughs> in the next room.
0: <laughs> Ryan, one of the things he's done in the past is uh, there's somebody based on all that information who's drawn a composite. And in the past, he's actually um, shared that composite. So maybe we can ask him mm. to do that next week. It's it's, it's pretty interesting, the uh, the rendition. You know, of course, it's a guess, but it's but it's oh, at it's least a logical hand. guess based on certain factors of the time. <laughs> I was encouraged to hear you guys do about Michael in Malaysia and in South Africa. That's great because I. I know when I was a young adult, that, was, that music was what I listened to all the time.
2: I also want to say, Roger, um, I my degree was in mathematics, so for my papers, can I also do? <laughs> 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 well,
0: why don't you propose some numerical um, way that you can answer the essay question, and, I, and I'll think about it.
2: Okay. <laughs> How about I calculate how many milliseconds I thought about Jesus within that hour? <laughs> yeah, <not> accurate. <laughs> I must admit, though, like, um, this isn't as bad because we're not getting like graded. At least I don't think we're getting graded. But when thinking about going back to university to go to seminary, I've always been concerned about doing my master's because I did a maths degree. So I've never written a paper, ever right? I don't think I've ever done an, a, a university assignment. So I've written proofs, but that's very different. So it, it's terrifying to think that I'm probably going to write like a second grade paper at university level.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm back. Here, okay, just, book. It's called, what, what Did Jesus Look Like by Joan Taylor?
0: Hey, Michael, I was telling them that uh, it, some point you you found a composite of somebody's best guess of what it looked like and i
1: think you shared it is that something you could do next week i i can show you right i got it on my phone oh okay well <laughs> that that, that, com- that composite i don't agree with okay well uh, that's the the national geographic did a composite what i found was it was a first century painting uh in 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 egypt uh, in, in North Africa, the Jewish community, what they would do, you would you would have a portrait painted of yourself, and you'd hang it on the wall. And then when you died, they would put it on your casket. They be, they're called mummy portraits. And in a, a town called Fayum, F-A-Y-U-M, Egypt, they found a whole cache of these things. And so I've got a picture of a first century Jewish, nor- you know, sort of average Jewish face. Which I believe, you know, when this is when I think of what Jesus looks like, this is what I think of. Here it is, See if I can do it. It's that. That's a first century Jewish face. Okay, I've got a couple of other ones. There's, I think that's Peter. Okay, and I and and here's Ju, here's Judas. But these are all. I mean, look look it up. F A Y U M Fayum, and there's one other book that I want to suggest to you. And uh, it's this one. It's called the Essential Talmud, okay? And it's uh, uh, Aiden uh, Steinsaltz. I know this sounds looks so boring. This is the best introduction to Judaism you will ever read. It is so good. Uh, in in terms of, I think you know, Jesus world. This, and of course, the, the guy who's writing it doesn't know he's doing. He doesn't know he's doing this but it's a it's a fantastic book. I've even got the audio audible uh, book.
2: Who's the author?
1: Um Aiden ADIN Steinsaltz. S T E I N S A L T Z. Thank you. Yeah. So
0: Michael the the, payo- the payoff if you will beyond just the academic uh, knowledge that it provides that'll give you a better sense of the Jewish world in which Jesus ministered and
1: lived. Yeah, this this is um, I mean, it's it's first century Judaism. I mean, I know that the Talmud was written afterwards, but it's based. The Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah, which is the sayings of the rabbis from 200 BC to 200 AD. So, uh, uh th- what Jesus is dealing with in the first century is the birth of the oral law, right? And when Jesus yells at the Pharisees and says those are rules made by men, and you know, e- and everything they fault him on every every time they say he breaks the sabbath he's breaking the oral law he's not breaking the bible i mean he's perfect he doesn't violate what scripture says but that whole conflict between oral law and torah and what is interesting to me you know when you when we say torah we mean the books of moses right that's what torah means when you read this guy when he says torah he means the oral law mm. And what, what's happened, and I didn't understand this. See, what we, 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 you go from Israelite religion to rabbinic Judaism. That, that, and Jesus' life is right at the crossroads of that. And, and so what we have now is rabbinic Judaism. And under, unfortunately, Christians try to understand Jesus' world in light of the Judaism we know now today. And it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So that, that's why the very, the very first one, I was talking about how fragmented his world is. Um, uh, there's another book. I wouldn't recommend it because it's so poorly written, but it's a man by, his name's Gutierrez. It's about a little 50-page book, but it, the title is From Israelite Religion to Rabbinic Judaism. And, uh, and he describes that, that transition. And I've never seen it so clearly before, but these are things you already know from reading the Gospels. You know that the Pharisees, that's the beginning of the rabbinic tradition, right? That's just starting. Um, so, the, you know, we, what do we have? We have priests in the temple, Israelite religion. We have rabbis and, a, and the synagogue, uh, you know, rabbinic Judaism. That's, and Jesus is right in the middle of that, which I find fascinating. And he's he is, he is a, a, a component or a, a proponent of Israelite religion. He wants to clean the temple up. And, and people ask him, what, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He says, keep the commandments, right? What does Moses say? That's what a very traditional person says. And I have never seen that before. I never read it. I'm sure other people have said it, but I haven't, I haven't seen that.
0: All right, folks, as, as we uh, move on to next week, I'm going to give a nod to uh, one, to uh, Michael's uh, mentor and uh, a guy named Bill Lane, w- William Lane. is um, He probably wrote that commentary when, Michael, maybe in the 70s on, yeah. The, on Mark? Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is even today, I mean, here it is 2020, and people still look at that commentary. It's in the New International Commentary of the New Testament. Yeah. And they've in, in that series, they have updated so many of those commentaries but unless they've done it in the last year or so, they have left that 1974, whatever, whenever it came out.
1: John, have John, left. Stott, John Stott said it's the finest commentary in the English language. John yeah. Stott said that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. John Stott's one of my heroes. That, that yeah. carries some weight. Yeah. Uh, so just, yeah, just know that one of, uh, that well, that Mike, Michael's um, mentor uh, has written kind of what many people would consider the definitive uh, yeah. commentary on, on Mark. And, and he, though it was written in the seventies in a series that has often given updates and replacements for the, for some of the originals. That's one that's never been touched. They've kind of left it just because it was so highly, highly thought of. So his, his,
1: his two volume commentary on the book of Hebrews is also pretty much a standard and that's in the word, the word biblical commentary series, two volumes. The bibliography is 287 pages long. The bibliography is longer than any (laughs) book I've ever written.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. Well, thanks again, Michael. And then for next week, folks, just don't remo- uh, don't forget that uh, just re- read the book of
1: Mark in its entirety, and uh, we'll be ready to uh, discuss it next week. And as you're reading, let me t- tell you a couple of things to look for. Look for the emotional life of Jesus. Look for adjectives that describe his emotions because he's madder and he's kinder. Uh, Mark is very much uh, uh, a, a person who's interested in Jesus' emotional life. So just, just look for that. See, see if you see it. Thanks, folks.
2: Are we right. we're done?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're done.
0: Unless you have any other th- anything else.
2: Well, I was just, I'm um, kind of thinking, so was it different? So when he was a child and they talked about when he was 12 and remember he was missing and he said that he would be in his, you know, that I would be in my father's. So at that time, though, they were very um, amazed at him, Right.
1: Yeah, they're amazed at his questions and his answers. Yeah. He's he's doing what everybody's doing. And also you gotta understand that Judaism, he's he's th- there's no such thing as a teenager in Judaism. You're a boy or you're a man. And he's a man. Uh I mean it's hard for us to grasp that, but um, but I yeah, but I, I'm I'm glad you bring that up because I I've never thought of that. It's also it's kind of another, it's another piece of this puzzle of so what does he do from the time he's 12? He's talking to rabbis, you know? Michael, do you uh, think that may have been his bar mitzvah at, at that point? Well, he, he has been bar mitzvah. If, if uh, I'm not sure exactly, I, I I think there's some question is if the bar mit if that, if, if bar mitzvahs then were the same as they are now, yeah. but uh, I've, I've, I know there's some, you know, scholars don't agree on anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've read, I've read articles that say both things, but uh, he's, I do know in, in in Judaism there's no there's no, no such thing as a teenager. You're a boy or you're a man. You're a girl or you're a woman. That's it. Yeah. So you're getting married when you're 12. <laughs> that's a fairly that's a fairly nat, you know girl, girls are 12 and boys are 14 15. So uh, but but thanks for bringing that up because what I want to I want to integrate that into my argument that he is a conservative. So even at 12, he's talking to rabbis in the temple. Yeah. Good point. Michael, getting ready for this.
0: I watched some uh, some videos and, and uh, read more. Are you a left-handed guitarist? Yeah. Yeah, just
1: like so, Jimi Hendrix.
0: Yeah. Hey, we're the persecuted. You and I, <laughs> I <know>. are.
1: Clearly <laughs> superior. I mean, clearly Jesus is left-handed. I mean, that we know yeah. that. Right, yeah. Right, and what's my academic reason? I really wanted to be that way. (laughs) Do you play left-handed? I play left-handed, yeah. Yeah. Now, do you play a a left-handed instrument or a right-handed instrument? You can find the
0: lefties today pretty easy.
1: Yeah, I play a right-handed instrument. Because I grew up with people who had much better guitars than I did, so I played their guitars. I can't afford to get that bridge flipped. Yeah.
2: When you put those pictures up of, um, your sketches of Jesus on my screen, uh, Eloy's right below, I was like, oh, he looks similar. <laughs> <laughs> like, it
4: looks
1: like you. <laughs> I knew Eloy was Christ-like. <laughs> well, I hope I'm not overthinking this business of what did he look like, but this, uh, this, uh, uh, woman uh, Taylor her book and she's a she's a PhD maybe from Vanderbilt uh, Joan Taylor uh, what did Jesus look like I, I don't know is our should we care I, I care
2: I think an interesting fact is that um, God prepared in advance by kind of making that rule about not having any uh, graven images and so the reason we don't have a lot of, you know, images of what Jewish people looked like and what they wore is because they just didn't make pictures of themselves exactly. and other people. And I feel like it was on purpose. Jesus is like, I'm going to make sure no one's going to make a picture of me that everyone's going to worship for all eternity. And, you know, yeah, yeah,
1: I think that's right, because the, the earliest pictures we had, the, the first portrayal of Jesus is 250 AD. And that's that's a little bit late, but they, they were clearly worshiping it. But that's why those Fayum portraits, that to me why those Fayum portraits are so important. And you can Google that and see there were hundreds of them. Uh, Egyptian, um, but they're they're but they're Semitic. They're they're I don't know if they're Jewish, but they're Semitic. Yeah. What was the event in, in the first the first
0: portrait of Jesus? Was it a was it around an event or was it?
1: I don't know what you mean. Was it like the uh, the Last Supper or was it crucifixion? Oh, it's it's a little it's a it's a stone box that's the that's the Last Supper. You hmm. can barely tell that's what it let's see, yeah, because Judas is off to the side. I used to I have a copy of it somewhere, but it, it's pretty well agreed upon that this is the first time Jesus was ever portrayed in art and it's two fifty AD. Yeah.
0: All right, guys. Um, Thanks again, Michael, and uh, Gospel of Mark for next week, and we will uh, talk about it then.
1: Okay. Have a great evening and a great week.